Welcome everyone. We are starting something very special. Uh, the MLOps community is working on system design reviews where we're going to be going over big data ML system architectures and doing a bit of a deep dive on what the, you know, what they were doing, what challenges came up uh, and why they architected what they architect, uh, architected. Uh, and today we have a very special guest. Uh, we have Saji Shanan Kunamel from Pinterest. Uh, I'm going to introduce him in a second. Um, but before we dive in, we're going to record this conversation at a very high level, um, but moving forward, we're going to be distilling this into something that we can animate. So if you were very curious about what we're talking about, references to certain pictures, don't worry, uh, the follow-up for this will give you a nice visualization of that. So today we're just going to have a nice and laid back discussion uh, with Saji. So Saji, welcome. Hey, uh, thanks, Dave. Uh, yeah, my name is Saji Chandan Kudumal. I work at Pinterest. Uh, in the content quality team. Uh, I had been with Pinterest for a little over uh, one and a half years now. Uh, prior to that, I worked at Uber for a short period of time and at uh, Google and Yahoo for a few years. Nice. Yeah. And so, uh, go ahead. So, yeah, uh, thanks for giving this opportunity to talk at MLOps. I've actually looked at some of your videos. I think you are actually doing a great job, you know, kind of bridging the gap between uh, mo model building and you know, taking that to that to production. I had been actually working on this for like few years, uh, like you know, taking models into production. Uh, and I know there's actually a lot of practical aspects, but not much of a theory there. Uh, I, I can clearly see uh, you people are actually you know, kind of building a theory around it and then you know, kind of sharing, uh, collecting knowledge and then you know, start sharing that across the community. That's that's definitely great, great to see. Oh, we really appreciate that. And let me also, while we're at it, I introduce uh, our other guest. We have uh, Benjamin Rogojan. I'm, I always mispronounce that last part, but Ben, why don't you just say a quick hello? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks and hello. Uh, my name, like you said, Ben Rogajan. Uh, quick background about me. I've worked kind of in the data science, data engineering space uh, for probably the last seven years, starting originally in healthcare, uh, going, doing some healthcare startups, and then kind of landed myself uh, working at Facebook um, in the data engineering space. And uh, along with that, I do a lot of consulting for companies kind of across the board, whether it be um, you know, large tech companies, you know, I've done like some pharmaceutical companies in a couple other, other areas, uh, kind of just helping them manage their whole end-to-end -end data flows, um, kind of getting them to that last, last, uh, leg of the mile. Um, yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Benjamin and Vishnu, uh, our always guest, uh, why don't you just give us a quick intro? I'm sure people are familiar with you, but say what's up. Thanks, David. You guys have probably heard me in previous sessions, but as a, as a real background this time, uh, I help with operations in the MLOps community. I work at a company called Tesseract Health where uh, we are building an affordable portable eye imaging device. And I work on machine learning engineering there and really love learning from the community, love learning from all of you and, and really excited to get into some technical detail with David, Shaji and Ben today. Awesome. So thank you guys for the introduction. We're just going to get right into it. So today, the focus of the discussion is this amazing article um, that Pinterest put out a little while ago on detecting image similarity in near real time using Apache Flink. Uh, but before this article, they had an architecture that was essentially batch processing. And here they focus on getting that to real time or near real time. 
And that's what we're going to talk about today. There's a, a really great article, which we can reference afterwards, um, but we're just going to get right into the format uh, of the system design and let's just go right into it. So Saji, thank you for, for being here. Um, I just want to start with a high level overview of what are Pinterest's engineering and machine learning requirements uh, in particular uh, for this problem with detecting image similarity. Yeah, uh, good question. So uh, Pinterest had been actually kind of historically uh, giving a lot of focus for uh, ML related systems, uh, both in terms of like, you know, kind of building models and using that heavily in our, in our production system across products like I mean, home feed uh, related pins, search and whatnot. Uh, but that, you know, that comes with a lot of challenges in terms of like, you know, kind of productionizing systems, uh, especially like, I mean, how do we, so, so the building the whole, uh, you know, kind of pipeline to uh, build the model, take that into production, doing a lot of experimentation and also uh, going through the life lifetime of the, uh, the model itself, right? So, uh, we start with a bunch of signals, you know, signals actually get deprecated over a period of time. The meaning or the semantics of the signal itself changes, right? Uh, and signals are actually produced by different teams. Uh, and we, as a consumer, we actually don't have really control over like what they would actually do with the, with the signal over a period of time. Uh, they might like deprecate one field and then introduce another field without we really knowing it, or they might actually change uh, a score, uh, which was actually a kind of a normalized score between zero and 100. Now it's actually normalized score between zero and one, for example. Uh, so there's actually a real need to kind of build systems, which actually kind of detects issues on the fly, uh, alert on it. And if there's something goes wrong, then take, uh, we should be able to kind of, you know, the alert should be in such a way that it's actually actionable in some, some format. Sometimes, you know, kind of just stop the bleeding. Uh, sometimes like when I kind of quickly uh, roll back to a, a good non-state, for example. Uh, so that's what, uh, you know, Pinterest had been actually focusing on, like in building uh, the whole infrastructure around it, uh, like hosting models. Uh, how do we actually kind of even uh, make the signals delivery uh, in a uniform way? Uh, uh, so that's, uh, that's, that's mostly it. Uh, and along with that, we also have, uh, we also had been building tools to kind of look into the signal. I would say like, I mean, what exactly is this a signal doing? Like what is, uh, can we actually explain what it is actually doing? Is there any way, let's say, you know, someone is actually kind of uh, opening a, a ticket saying that, you know, this model or is actually doing something really bad. So what is the way to kind of, you know, go uh, take a deeper look at it and then try to understand what the signal is doing. Uh, is there any kind of, you know, metadata associated with it to kind of, you know, make it easier to kind of debug it and sometimes, you know, kind of make actions on it, right? These are like machine learning models. Uh, there is some, you know, certain uh, uh, accuracy and then, then coverage associated with that. So there will be false positives, false negatives, and then we have to deal with it in production. Man, so it sounds like 
easiness of debugging, as you said in the article, is super important, and the ability to explain the signal. So I'm assuming the source, where it came from, uh, transformations that were applied to that signal, um, and of course, monitoring, right? You need to be able to see the health of the system in real time. I'm, I'm curious, does Pinterest have an internal system uh, to take care of all that monitoring or in alerting or using anything open source uh, to do that? So we do have uh, uh, a, a bunch of tools uh, that's actually built around like some of the open source uh, uh, open source projects. Uh, but we do have a, uh, I, I would say very strong set of tools we can actually use to kind of monitor. Uh, not only in real time, we also have uh, uh, monitoring tools that we can actually kind of leverage to do uh, hourly monitoring, daily monitoring, and also do like probably like bit uh, things like I mean, kind of look at data like month over month, week over week analysis. So that's also pretty important, I guess. Like you know, as I, as I was saying, you know, some of the things actually get duplicated over a period of time. Uh, there is a field uh, someone has actually kind of using that as one of the most important uh, signal, some uh, one of the most important feature in their their model that actually gets duplicated over six months of period of time, right? And uh, initially, it's just like one point one percentage, so no one really pays attention to it but then over a period of time like when it actually goes from you know kind of 100 percentage to zero percentage uh and it's something like in a kind of uh, uh death by thousand cards no one really looks at it so the the kind of uh things we can do like when you're kind of month over month analysis or you know even quarter over quarter analysis is actually very important that makes that makes total sense, and and I'm I'm curious, how was the switch from this batch pipeline to this this new pipeline? I'm sure one of the requirements was to make that as seamless as possible. Uh, what were some of the challenges that 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 stick out to you during that transition? Okay, so good question. So uh, the batch pipeline had been actually running in production for for a few years, and that's actually a very mature system. Uh, people have actually built in a lot of optimization to it. A uh, lot of uh, monitoring on top of it. Uh, so, and then there are the other things. There's actually a lot of consumers, right? The people are actually using this in, in production for various purposes. So, what we wanted to do is like make that switch from batch to real time as seamless as possible for our consumers. And there is other set of challenges. So, there's actually a huge amount of historical data we have actually collected, right? So. We need to get that into a a serving system uh, where we can actually kind of you know look at it and then make a decision in real time, right? So when you look at Flink, we have to set a timeout for it. So and all the operation we do should be actually within that timeout period, and we can't really have like when a kind of timeout set to like when probably minutes or or uh, or hours that wouldn't make any sense. Uh, so making sure that we have all those backend systems uh, available for, you know, kind of curating it and then see uh, we have all the sub signals available in some curable format. Not only that, uh, we also have to scale those systems. Uh, and on top of it, in batch mode, we have this added advantage that, you know, we, we produce uh, snapshots and then you know once the snapshot is actually produced we have the the lecture to you know kind of go over the whole snapshot 
make sure that the data is actually consistent. Uh, we, you can also do like you know, kind of day over day analysis. So for example, you produce like 10 billion records today. And then if it's actually you know, kind of 20 billion all of a sudden, then you know that you know, probably there is an issue. Typically, you know, data set actually goes in a very natural way, right? probably you know, 10 billion to probably 10.1 billion, for example, and, and uh, so on and so forth. Then we lose that that luxury when it comes to uh, real time, right? Because in real time, there is no easy way you can actually kind of go over the whole set and then make a a, a detection on it, saying that okay, oh, we are actually in a kind of producing an inconsistent result, or you know, all of a sudden uh, we have uh, you know kind of something is actually going wrong with our, our backend systems and and those kind of things. So uh, as you are asking about, like you know the 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 debuggability and then the monitoring but it actually has to be built right into the system uh so that we we should be able to you know kind of catch issues as and when it happens and not only we catch it we also have a capability to you know, kind of roll back to a good state as and when we actually detect it so it seems like a lot of what you're describing here are pretty crucial devops sort of responsibilities from the standpoint of being able to engage in rollbacks, standpoint of being able to ensure a seamless transition between different deployments or different models of systems being able to work. And one of the things we talk a lot about in the community is the extent to which automation uh, is a goal, uh, is the extent to which automation is a, or is a reality in the DevOps processes. And I would love to understand your perspective at Pinterest. You've mentioned how there's so many different teams and there's sort of like dependencies on different systems and signals and inputs and outputs. How does the DevOps workflow for your team in the context of this project, how did it look? How did you notify the teams of the change that was that was coming and then do the deployments on that basis? Really good question. I think uh, that's a lot to do with like when, how the, the systems actually in a kind of uh, mature over a period of time. Right? So when we started, uh, everything was actually manual, I would say. So we do the, the bootstrapping manually. Uh, that actually takes a couple of uh, days because it is actually historic, huge amount of historical data we collect. We also run uh, one-off queries to you know, kind of find out what issues are there. And uh, that's how it started. But soon we realized that that's actually not a scalable model. Right, uh, because bootstrapping, so what used to happen was that there are actually three systems we need to bootstrap, actually four systems we need to bootstrap. We uh, create search indexes, we create uh, uh, data for our uh, graph storage. We also create data for our other, uh, you know, kind of the, the rocks TV part where, you know, can, you can quickly, given an image, you know, kind of quickly uh, look up in the in the rock store DB and then get the, uh, the the related data, and what used to happen is that okay, we talk to the teams, and then you know, kind of they would agree that okay, you can uh, bootstrap it at like I mean, ten thousand QPS, uh, and then that would take a couple of days to you know kind of bootstrap. But that repeatability aspect is that's where the issue comes in, right? So we initially we do that, then we you kind know, of go back and then find out a bug, and then we need to kind of you know, probably you know, kind of redo that. And when we start to redo it, we need to kind of you know, time it in such a way that all these teams actually agrees that we can actually you know, kind of write data at a much higher QPS. And that's actually not uh, practically possible in many cases. 
for example, you know, one of the teams would actually come back and then say, that, hey, one of our cluster is actually having high QPS, uh, high CPU issues. So we'll have to you know, kind of stop it. And then when, when we stop it, then the whole bootstrapping actually kind of stalls. Right, then we have to you know, kind of wait until you know they actually recovers from the system. So going from that, you know, kind of completely rewriting that storage to kind of find out what delta needs to be uh, bootstrapped. That was actually our next step. And then uh, even that we started with manually, like and we wrote some scripts and then we start running it it manually. But then soon we realized that even that's actually not scalable because when so someone comes to office in the morning, the data has to be actually ready for them to you know, kind of work with that. So we automated that part as well, like when you're kind of finding what delta that needs to be kind of, you know, patched. And on top of it, I would say there are actually other aspects. For example, you know, we actually don't have a CACD until now. Uh, that would mean that you know any code change we make, you know, someone has to you know kind of bring up a test workflow and then you know kind of do some kind of uh, manual verification. Uh, but we would soon move away from that. I mean, again, it's kind of you know, it's like how much an engineer would know about the system uh, before they can actually you know, kind of touch part of the system and then make some changes. And also, once we actually kind of hand it over to kind of our on-call team, how much they should actually know about the system before they can you know, kind of start operating on it. So moving from a completely manual mode, you know, kind of semi-manual, semi-automated, uh, and uh, moving to a completely automated, that's our goal. I don't know how much we can actually achieve it, but at least we, we kind of uh, foresee that we should be able to you know, kind of tell uh, an on-call engineer that, okay, do these three steps or you know, kind of these four steps. And those steps are actually so easy to do that we probably wouldn't need any, any further automation from that point. Uh, we, when you talk about like automation, there's actually another major uh, aspect to the, the whole system. For example, let's say you know, uh, the system is actually running and then uh, inevitably at some point there'll be some bugs introduced uh, either through an, our own code change or you know kind of uh, our you know one of the upstream actually introduced a bug and at that point we need to have a way to say that okay stop serving the bad data so that we won't actually you know, kind of start polluting our downstreamers right uh, we actually don't have that at the moment we can kind of you know, completely bring down the whole pipeline uh, to to handle it. But one of the things we had been actually looking is that how do we actually kind of you know uh, deliver the the signal we produce in a uniform way that we actually have a single point where we can actually go and say that okay, stop the bleeding. We know that there was actually an issue between timestamp T1 and T2, so don't serve data between T1 and T2. Instead, like when serve some safe default values are something which our consumers would, would need. And we are thinking that that's actually something we should be able to kind of automate, or at least from an operational standpoint, someone would just go and then and change a zookeeper file or something and say, that, okay, this is the period for which we don't really need to kind of you know, serve the data until someone you know kind of forcefully take it off. Got it, got it. So there's a lot of, clearly a lot of, thought given to the trade-offs 
and the different approaches that your team tested throughout the engineering of the system, which I always love to hear about. It's so instructive to at least learn from other engineers for me, you know, how they think about what's necessary now versus what's necessary later, because a lot of what, you know, you learn as a younger developer is, you know, you learn different, uh, almost religious beliefs. So CICD is a must. Everybody tells you that nowadays. And, and you know, in the practical context of a system that, that needs to be in production in a short amount of time, you need to engage in certain trade-offs. And it's very instructive to hear the kinds of decisions you had to make. A question that I had related to your previous answer, could you go into a little bit more detail about what you mean by the bootstrapping process and how that imposed some of the trade-offs that you talked about? Yeah, so bootstrapping is we have actually, uh, you know, kind of billions of uh, entities we have already processed or a period of time in the boots, uh, in the in the batch uh, system. Uh, in order for our system to work, we need to, uh, it's not only for our like, serving purpose, we also need to have the historical data uh, for our real-time system to work. Uh, correctly. For example, so the way we actually kind of you know, uh, do the uh, duplicate detection is as and when an image is created, we actually look at our existing corpus, right? So existing corpus is our historical data. So this data needs to be actually part of our searching index. It should be part of our graph storage. Graph storage is where we actually you know, kind of store the cluster information. So each image would be actually in a kind of ultimately would become part of a cluster. And uh, there's actually a representative element of each cluster. We call them cluster heads or canonical images. And uh, if, some, if we want to kind of start serving this data, this has to be part of all our storage systems. And also starting from at some instance, we want to kind of start processing from the real time uh, pipeline. So that also requires all these uh, systems to be uh, storage systems to be consistent and also have should have the complete and correct data. That makes sense. And and I want to talk a little bit about like the capacity that you're dealing with. Uh, it seems like you guys are, are dealing with a lot of data. You know, I was looking a little bit into the article and, and it stated that the number of pins saved across in Pinterest can be easily over 300 billion. Uh, the rate of image creation can vary to about 100, 200 at a peak uh, per second. Um, and, and then you have, uh, like you were mentioning, multiple clusters. Um, can we just dive a little bit more into the scale of, of what you're dealing with? Yeah, so we at an image level, we actually have, uh, I would say, uh, tens of uh, billions of images that, that we need to deal with. Uh, and the rate of uh, image creation, so that's actually not really related to the, the actual pin creation itself, uh, because our system is actually agnostic of uh, what pins are actually created. We actually deal it at a media level. Uh, image or in a kind of at, at video level. Uh, but still the number is like, I mean, I would say at peak would be around 200 QPS we need to deal with. Uh, for, uh, for due to, you know, some of the uh, uh, decisions we have actually made in the, in the design, uh, we also make, uh, we also reprocess some of the, uh, you know, previously created images every day. So there's actually a kind of, you know, a scheduled reprocessing that happened. So we should have our system scaled up to handle that as well. And on top of it, there's actually a kind of 
failures uh, that we should actually anticipate, right? So, and when that failure happens, uh, there could be like multiple actions we could take, right? One is actually, you know, kind of we roll it back to a previous state and then, you know, and then we know that uh, probably past few days of data we need to reprocess along with the, the incoming data. So, so that's where the, the scalability aspect actually comes into picture. So though the actual rate of uh, uh, pin creation or any kind of image creation is like probably 100 or 200, the system should be actually in a kind of scaled up to handle up to like probably, you know, uh, 1000 or 2000 QPS so that we can uh, give a, an SLA to a consumer saying that, you know, if something goes wrong, we would be able to recover from it in, in X number of hours, for example. Makes sense. And, and I'm curious, you know, you often hear about the different styles of architectures where you have batch and streaming alongside each other. You know, there's Lambda, there's Kappa and all sorts of names coming out. Um, am, am I understanding correctly that you still have this batch uh, pipeline existing alongside the real one? Or have you, are you storing, I guess, like in the Kappa architecture, storing everything in one place indefinitely? So like, I know peop, some people use Kafka, like, and just like store everything there indefinitely. What's going on at the level here? How do you, are, are these systems still both uh, existing simultaneously or have you migrated to now everything being streaming? Yeah, so uh, good question. Uh, so currently we have two parallel systems, one uh, real time and one batch. But our hope is that we should be able to you know, kind, of, kind of completely duplicate the batch one and then uh, rely on, on, the, on the streaming uh, streaming pipeline. Uh, however, uh, uh, there's actually one uh, good aspect of our system is that we can actually process events independently. So each event is actually an independent event to us. For example, you know, there's actually a, a new image that has been actually uploaded to PIN uh, at, at Pinterest, right? So we can go and then uh, process that independently. Uh, this would actually mean that what we need, let's say if at all we need to do a complete reprocessing of our systems, what we need is just the, the set of all images that has been actually uploaded to Pinterest. Uh, so uh, we don't need to have uh, the knowledge of when this image was actually created in most of the cases. We also don't need to have any state associated with this image. Uh, that's actually not the case in many other cases, uh, you know, pipelines where there's actually strict ordering in which we need to kind of reprocess some of the systems, right? So for example, uh, if you are dealing with uh, customer orders or, you know, uh, or, you know, probably uh, looking at uh, a, a news feed, for example, right? So there's actually a timing aspect uh, and also the ordering also matters there. So, that's when you know the, the Kappa architecture would become uh, really complex, and also that comes with its own challenges. Definitely, definitely. I'd love to start talking about the different system interfaces in this design. Um, there's a lot going on here, so we don't have to spend too much time here. But can you briefly go over some of the different entities uh, or actors involved? Uh, you know, for example, such as Kafka. So I know that Kafka is being used here. There's also something called the VIP uh, embeddings generator. Um, from your perspective, what are some of the main components that are being um, uh, strung into the system? 
Okay, so let me answer uh, it by taking a step backward. So what we basically do is, you know, as and when an image is actually created at Pinterest, we need to check if this exact image has been actually uh, used at Pinterest before or a, a similar image, close enough image, so that we can actually call it as a near dupe, has been actually uploaded at, at Pinterest. Uh, and in order to do that, we uh, what we basically do is we have an existing corpus, as I was actually mentioning before, and we generate embeddings for the new uh, image that has been actually uploaded and uh, <clears throat> use the embeddings to do a custom search over the existing corpus. And during that, we actually generate candidates. And then uh, once the candidates are generated, we have an internal process to kind of enhance the set of candidates. And once the candidates are picked, we run our machine learning model, which is actually a TensorFlow model. And that actually spits out score, uh, a normalized score between zero and one. And then there's a, a threshold we use to kind of you know, pick up uh, the, the right cluster for the newly created image. Uh, so if you look at the architecture diagram, so there's actually VIP team, they actually handle all the media that has been uh, uploaded into uh, Pinterest. So they generate uh, embeddings for, for us. And then they once they generate embeddings, they actually kind of send notification through uh, Kafka and we listen to them. And for historical reasons, we actually require multiple uh, embeddings to work with the, with the system. Uh, so once uh, we, we get the notification on embeddings, uh, we do a stream stream join uh, to reduce further uh, downstream processing. Uh, typically, uh, this is actually the kind of embeddings are available within like a few seconds apart. Uh, once the embeddings are available and then we get a notification on it, we know that all the dependent signals are actually available now at this point. So that's the, the starting point uh, for our, our processing. And then, uh, we basically extract the embeddings, uh, send that to the uh, our custom search engine, which is actually hosted on on a system called Manas. Uh, and once the uh, search results are actually arrived, we also do some kind of enhancing uh, and uh, enlarge that uh, set of candidates. So typically, uh, we do a we get. Uh, uh, we, we fetch uh, 200 to 300 results from our custom search engine and then do a 10X enhancement of it. So typically what we are dealing with is like pro probably around 2,000 uh, uh, candidates at any point. And so you can easily see that you know, how the, the system is actually kind of you know, have a huge fan out problem here. Uh, and once the candidates are generated, we actually send that to our uh, machine learning hosting service, which is called Scorpion. Uh, and for every candidate, we get a normalized score between zero and one. And then once we get it, we basically sort it on the on the score and then uh, pick the the cluster with the with the highest score. And if there is no cluster formed, then we we would just uh, discard it, or and it actually becomes its own cluster. And then you know subsequent images can be actually part of it depending on you know how close the the image is and once the the uh, uh, duplicate is detected we also need to update our 
uh, storage systems, uh, one for like one for our serving purpose, and then also for our subsequent uh, queries. Uh, we use uh, a version of RocksDB uh, that is our kind of you know uh, point lookup system. So any of, of our consumers who wants to find out. Uh, given an image, what is the the canonical ID for it? They can actually come to that system and then then do that lookup. We use graph storage to store our uh, clusters. So this is like given a canonical image or a cluster head. Uh, give me the list of all uh, cluster members. Uh, and we also do a write to our uh, search uh, index back so that you know the newly created image actually part of the searchable uh, search index. Lots of, lots of moving parts here. Um, and, and I guess the heart of the system or at the heart of the system is Apache Flink, uh, this Apache Flink workflow. Um, yeah. There's a lot going on here. So maybe we can start uh, doing a bit of a deep dive into some of these, these, I guess, steps within like this pipeline. Does that sound okay? Yeah. Great. So uh, let's start at like the very beginning, right? So we have a newly, you kind of were getting at this, we have a newly created image um, and then you run the following steps. So this is going from the article, right? We have to extract LSH terms uh, from the visual embedding. So we go from, I guess, embeddings to LSH terms, which my understanding is, is a reduced dimension size or it's smaller, has a smaller memory footprint. Um, and then from there, we go into the candidate generation and then the candidate selection. Um, can we just talk a little bit more about what's going on at that level? Um, I'm sure a lot of people are curious to how uh, the tech that you're using there, uh, uh, some of the challenges that, that came up there. Uh, and we can just kind of briefly go over that before we go on to some of the, the different stages in the pipeline. Yeah, sure. So once the, you know, once we get a notification on like for a given image, all embeddings are available, we basically in a kind of query back that system and then fetch all the embeddings that we actually require. So from the embedding, we have a, a library which we use to kind of generate the LSS terms, as you said, like in reduce, reduced dimensions. Uh, and then use that. So LSS terms are our, our keywords to do the uh, custom search. Right? So the custom search index is actually built on top of uh, LSS terms. Uh, and we basically send out, so we pick X number of LSS terms, which is actually fixed for every images and then send that to our custom search engine. So custom search engine would treat it as a, you know, this is actually kind of a sentence and then you know, see how many overlappings are uh, there with other uh, images within the corpus, right? So typically we pick three overlapping, that's, uh, that's the minimum requirement. Uh, and there's actually uh, you know bunch of things actually going on because this the way we actually pick the LSS terms, which is actually kind of optimized for our own purpose, uh, which actually kind of detects the the duplicates with higher higher coverage and accuracy. Uh, and <laughs> at the uh, so as I said, there's actually a minimum number of overlaps uh, we are required to you know kind of. Uh, for the search engine to return our results. We also want the results to be returned in such a way that the results are actually ordered in terms of the number of overlaps, uh, overlaps we have. It's, for example, if we have overlaps of uh, five and six, for example, we want all the results that has 
overlapping of six to be returned before fives are actually returned. Uh, so this actually puts some uh, stress on the search engine because it's actually a bit different from the way uh, uh, typical search engines are working, right? Because even if we actually miss a few results uh, from you know some of our, some of the 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 global results in in a typical search engine, which is kind of acceptable, but that's actually not acceptable in in our system. It's actually acceptable at a very small. Uh, I mean, issues like that are actually acceptable to a very small percentage, but uh, at a large scale, definitely that's not acceptable. Uh, so we actually uh, prioritize uh, or we sacrifice latency for correctness uh, for our search engine. So search engine actually takes a few seconds before it can actually kind of return results for larger, larger uh, results. Uh, so once we uh, you know get the, the results, we also do an uh, candidate enhancer. That's what we call. So basically, you know, for every uh, uh, result we get from the search engine uh, to add more variability and then you know, kind of beat the the bias of our TensorFlow model itself, we kind of you know, add some variability to it. So for every image, we also pick every image that's actually returned from the search engine. We also pick a bunch of similar images and then kind of mix it with it and then you know, send it over our TensorFlow model. Uh, yeah, that's that's what's happening uh, within the you know Apache Fling workflow. This is all handled by the 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 Fling workers themselves, uh, and everything that's actually you know, kind of uh, we deal with like when the the custom search engine or you know kind of TensorFlow hosting. These are all like hosted as uh, external backends that we rely on, uh, including our storage systems uh, and. We what we also do is uh, we were actually talking about like debuggability and in a kind of easiness of uh, uh, easiness of debuggability and then in a kind of explain explainability aspects. Uh, so one of the the thing we have actually designed our schema is with every schema can also add some metadata and also some debug information to it. So most of the uh, failures are also captured within the uh, within the schema itself so for example uh, we uh, we add information uh, like i mean how many results were actually returned by our search, search engine and for every result what was the number of overlapping we had uh, uh, we also uh, when we do the candidate enhancing stage we also find out like the list of candidates that has been actually picked using the enhancement process and also why they were actually picked up right what was the reason why we actually picked up them and when we send the uh, uh, instances to uh, tensorflow or evaluation what is the result what is the score that's actually returned by the tensorflow model and if there's actually an error we also catch it so that you know if there is a false positive or something that's reported we know that that was we can clearly distinguish if it's because of the score issue or if it's because of a backend issue for example um, and we basically we do i would say a bit of an overkill to in a kind of catch a lot of information but that has definitely helped with the, the dev velocity initially. 
and uh, we send that uh, you know the final results along with the metadata and the debug information to Kafka, and that is actually captured uh, in an S3 S3 bucket, and that's where we actually run our you know short-term monitoring, like hourly monitoring. Uh, this is obviously available for like I mean, other long-term monitoring as well. So I thought that was so interesting, so much of the detail that you shared in terms of the amount of data that you're gathering. It's really instructive to understand in order to preserve that level of debuggability for this image similarity and, and to even understand how important it is. I mean, the, the amount of data you gather is often a signal of how, how important something is to your workflow or to your operations. Um, and ensuring the, the quality of those operations, in this case, content quality. And the fact that you're collecting all of that prediction information, all of that metadata associated with the candidates and, and how they were selected, that's really, really fascinating. And so just to be clear here, so you go through the process of you know, generating an embedding, finding candidates, and then generating the similarity score. That similarity score, that's an output from a TensorFlow model, right? That's right. Okay, and so then you take that output from the TensorFlow model, all of that metadata about candidate generation, the you know the image itself um, or the image embedding itself, and then you send that to, to Kafka and to your different storage and 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 and, and sort of serving systems. That's right. We uh, so uh, we uh, before sending the storage systems, we basically you know, kind of strip off all the. Uh, uh, debug information and some of the metadata because you know if there's actually an issue with you know some of the backends uh, our storage would end up storing a lot of uh, metadata information that could actually kind of affect our our serving okay. uh, because the payload could be actually huge and then uh, this would be actually pretty consistent uh, you know once we write to our storage so we basically strip off the the metadata and some of the metadata and uh, uh, debug information, but we still keep it in, in Kafka where we actually have a bit more flexibility in terms of like I mean, how far I and mean, how much uh, you know data we can store and then you know how long we can actually store it in, in our, our S3 bucket. Yeah, that's really it's useful to hear that you had to you know strip off some of that because I'm I'm I was sitting here thinking that is a lot of data to have to consistently store for every single uh, embedding or same instance. same. You know, a related question that I have here is this, this notion of the debuggability and how that requirement came about and sort of how meticulously your team and you have engineered to it. Could you talk a little bit about how that requirement was defined, which team or who may have defined that over the course of the company's history or over the course of the company's project? So, so specifically for this project, I would say, you know, we do have a batch counterpart. Uh, so, when we with actually has some you know kind of coverage and you know kind of accuracy numbers uh, which actually means that when we actually build a new system uh, a, or, or a real time part of a counterpart of it every the the cute question everyone would ask is like how is it actually doing it with batch system right so we need to have a way to prove ourselves that okay this is actually working as expected uh, not only working as expected, it's actually doing pretty similar to what the batch system is doing. Uh, you know, naturally there is actually divergence because of the the ordering uh, order in which we actually kind of process events and other things. But we need to make sure that uh, we, if there is actually divergence between you know real time and batch system, 
uh, how do we actually go and uh, explain each and every divergence, right? So when there's actually two results that's actually not matching, uh, how do we track it back and then say that, okay, this is actually an expected divergence versus this is actually introduced because of, you know, one of our backend failed or, you know, some of those issues. Uh, so that's why we started thinking like, when, how do we actually uh, go about doing it? And then we realized that what, uh, oh yeah, we realized that, you know, what additional metadata or any kind of debug information we need to kind of, you know, uh, start storing it in our, our schema so that uh, tracking back to uh, the, uh, the event level or in the event which actually originated the processing is actually easier. So we even have uh, automated scripts, uh, you know, given differences between uh, batch and real time, uh, we can actually completely track it back to the original point and then pinpoint what were exactly that divergence actually started, right? You know, some of, in some of the cases we could say that, you know, there's actually a restricted, uh, we actually restrict the number of results result by the search engine. And, you know, because of when we actually kind of restrict it, there's actually, uh, the results are actually indeterministic, right? So we, we don't know what would be the, the tail end of it. So there's actually that, that divergence comes in. Some of the things even we also have looked at issues, you know, some of the issues are actually introduced because of floating point precisions, for example, right? Uh, so yeah. we do have that capability, you know, kind of track it down and then you know, kind of figure out issues uh, or when we actually compare batch versus real time. Uh, at a company level, uh, uh, at Pinterest, uh, in general, explainability is actually becoming uh, a, a harder question uh because people have actually built a lot of models and then you know, they're actually used in production uh and models are actually built on top of other models right uh so the output of a model is actually used as an input to other models and it's actually a huge chain of uh models that's been actually built and if there's an issue uh that actually comes up uh not even actually a production issue, but you now if someone just needs to find out, like pick a field in a thrift and then you know, find out how this is actually generated, right? That's actually a huge, uh, huge challenge. Uh, we ourselves actually faced uh, that because, you know, people, when, you know, someone actually uses output of a model to another model, they would actually just rename that model, that, that field, so that not even a code search can actually, actually figure it out. Uh, so what I was actually trying to say that, you know, explainability becomes a huge part of the, the whole uh, machine learning uh, infrastructure. Uh, and also the ability to deal with uh, short term and then, you know, kind of long term failures also becomes important. D does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. No, that was it. That was a masterclass. Thank you. <laughs> And uh, I, I want to like end on on the storage and the serving part. So I'm going to let Benjamin uh, lead that question as a data engineer here. So Ben, why don't you take it away? Yeah, no, I'm I'm just kind of curious, like like how you kind of are managing all the various components in terms of like back end storage for for an analytical standpoint. Also, like again, you've got all this real time kind of going uh, around. So it's like 
how, how do you make sure all that data kind of stays in sync for one? I think that's probably, I think you kind of brought that up with like the batch ETL versus, you know, streaming, you, you brought up the whole fact, like you can bring back to one point, like how, how do you deal with all those challenges and, and, um, and try and make sure everything stays in sync uh, throughout this whole process? Uh, good question. So we, uh, we actually use, as I said, we basically rely on uh, three storage, uh, different storage systems. One is actually a ROPS DB, uh, which is used for, uh, low latency lookups uh, the other one is a uh, graph storage system uh, which actually provides us uh, uh, pagination support for example you know some of the clusters are actually pretty huge that it's not easy to uh, get the list of cluster members in a single call uh, so that's the reason why we we switched to using graph storage which actually supports pagination natively uh the other storage system we rely on is the the manas index itself the the search storage and as you can see these systems have their own consistency model and they actually catch up with their own replication at at their own cadence but typically these systems are like uh provides us like pretty good consistency guarantees which actually works with our our systems uh, pretty well However, uh, we have at times we have actually seen like when the systems actually go uh, out of sync, uh, and then we have hourly and daily jobs, uh, which actually you know just looks at our final results, and then you know see uh, some of the inconsistencies are actually kind of introduced because our underlying storage is actually going out of sync. And uh, and we also have like um, scripts to you know kind of patch the differences when that actually happens. Uh, typically, very very minor, uh, you know, of millions, you know, probably like ten or fifteen records actually goes out of sync, which is most wow. of the time. <laughs> this is very little to have out of sync, you know, from millions. So that's pretty impressive. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, we we still go out and then you know, kind of you know patch it and then you know bring it out to bring it to to consistency. Uh, for our analytics purpose, uh, we rely on two different uh, sources. One is there's actually a uh, short-term uh, storage that's created from our Kafka topic itself. So we uh, create hourly tables, uh, and that's actually persisted for 90 days. Uh, we also have uh, daily snapshots created from our uh, graph storage and also our rocks TV. So that's mostly used for, you know, kind of uh, fine, uh, doing a bit uh, longer term uh, monitoring, like on a kind of day over day or, you know, kind of month over month. And uh, this snapshots also gives us uh, an opportunity to, you know, kind of find out the delta that has actually changed from day uh, one to day two and if there's actually something went wrong we can actually easily quickly find out that delta and then you know patch our storage systems uh, yeah and uh, on top of it i mean we have uh, scheduled workflows which actually you know kind of runs as either as like hourly jobs or or daily jobs and then uh, spits out or exports metrics uh, that we uh, capture, like when, the, for example, the number of inconsistencies we found out, uh, or our coverage numbers just by looking at the previous day's data. 
and how is it actually doing it with our historical coverage numbers and and, and those kind of things. Yeah. No, that's that's uh, definitely impressive to have all that that data kind of moving around. One, keeping it in sync, um, and two, being able to use so much of it, um, I think, in real time. So, no, I'm very impressed. Yeah, it's it's good to close on these these data engineering questions, which I think help us understand the 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 entirety of the system. We started off with an image, we go through the machine learning component to really identify what that similarity score is, and then figure out how to store it in a way that all the different use cases can be satisfied. Your content quality team is, is really doing some fantastic work, uh, Shaji. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Ben also to, for joining us. And thank you to David for, for coordinating and, and really helping us have what I think is one of the best technical discussions in the community that we've had in a really, really long time. Um, any, any final comments or thoughts, uh, David, Shaji, Ben? Um, yeah, just, I guess this is, there's a lot going on here and it sounds like you guys are growing pretty fast. And, uh, like you mentioned, you're, you're looking toward to improve this system. I, I guess let's just close on that note. Where, where is this system headed? Um, what's, what's the next year going to look like for this, uh, workflow? Okay. Good question. Uh, Dave. so, uh, as I said, uh, we, uh, so the immediate, uh, uh, short term or in a short to medium term things that's actually happening is. We are going to build a CACD for this so that, you know, kind of uh, we will have much more confidence when, you know, engineers make changes and then when it hits production. The other uh, set of things that's actually happening is that, so we build this for images, uh, but if you look at the whole architecture, it actually doesn't have anything to do with images, right? So it should be able to work with any entities. So that's actually another set of uh, things we are actually doing. like. Uh, expanding this to other media types. Uh, it doesn't really need to be a media. Uh, we could actually expand this to uh, any kind of entity. So we, uh, so Pinterest recently launched something called Idea Pins. Uh, yeah, which is uh, stories, like when a kind of a stream of uh, images and uh, and videos someone could put mm -hmm. in. So you can see that, you know, the system can also be uh, uh, adapted to, you know, kind of deal with uh, dupes and, you know, kind of near dupes in idea pins, for example. Uh, and as I said, on the, on the storage and serving side, we are unifying the way consumers are actually going to uh, consume our system. We want to protect, so historically, uh, consumers had been actually in a kind of uh, uh, curing our system in various modes, there's actually signal delivery service at Pinterest. Uh, and also some of them would you know, directly go and hit the storage systems. So we are basically trying to uh, kind of put a, you know, kind of, uh, we want to kind of have a, every consumers should have an unified way of consuming the, the signal so that, you know, for future migrations, we, we can completely drive from our side. Consumers doesn't really need to know that the data is coming from graph storage versus like when some other storage, and then we should be able to kind of you know, quickly move that one storage system to another storage system completely handled by our team, uh, protecting our consumers from doing this expensive uh, migrations. And uh, as I was also saying, like when you know, kind of, how do we deal with failures, short-term failures and long-term failures is actually another aspect we are actively looking into. Uh, the, the most important thing is like, I mean, how do we 
uh, you know, quickly stop the bleeding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while the uh, repair is actually, uh, you know, worked on the on the storage systems, how do we keep uh, two things, right? How do we actually keep processing the incoming uh, uh, input from our Kafka streams? Uh, so that you know the business is actually as usual, except that in the, there's actually a small issue, and also how do we actually do it in in a safe and consistent way that consumers doesn't have to you know kind of make any additional actions uh, further that you know once the issue is fixed, it's actually just just forgotten. Awesome! It sounds like you guys are, are going to be doing some really exciting work focusing on generalizing this to more data types, uh, making this more reliable and more robust, uh, all things that we are interested in hearing. So we look forward uh, to what you guys are going to be putting out next. Uh, Saji, I want to thank you for the time that you spent with us today. Um, And yeah, uh, for the MLOps community, um, where can they reach out to you if they're interested in finding out more about you and and the work that you are doing is the best place to reach out to you via LinkedIn or or, what's the best place to get to you? Yeah, so there's a, uh, you can search by uh, my name on LinkedIn. I hope it actually shows up. Uh, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll make sure they got it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. so, yeah, and uh, I mean, if you have further questions, uh, yeah, feel free to reach out to me. Uh, I, I will, if I don't have the answer, I'll find out someone at Pinterest uh, to, to give you the right answer. Uh, and yeah, once again, thanks for the ML uh, Ops community. And also uh, thanks to Dave, uh, Ben and Vishnu for uh, leading the amazing discussion. Thank you so much, guys. Well, we're going to end on that note. We hope you guys have uh, enjoyed this conversation and we look forward to talking with you guys next time. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks. Bye.